So we've been in Matthew chapter 5 the last few weeks, and we are continuing, obviously, in that since Tom just read it. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 16 uh, this morning. Before we get started, though, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we just sang that your word will be implanted into our lives. I pray, Lord, that it will not just be, be merely an um, exercise that we go through every Sunday morning, that we sing uh, songs and then we listen to a message being preached and sing a few more songs and leave. Protect us from the hardness of heart that uh, so often can be prevalent. Instead, Lord, we ask that this morning that you will again uh, work mightily by your Spirit in us, um, inflaming us and reminding us of your deep and abiding love and your amazing salvation that you bring. So glorify yourself in our time together in the Word this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So we're looking at verses 14 through 17, this, or, I'm sorry, through 16 this morning. We're continuing the, the development of this sermon called, that has been labeled the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, we started it in verses 1 through 12 as we worked our way through the Beatitudes in one uh, message. If you were not here for the study on the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, I would encourage you to listen to it. Uh, because I think it's foundational in our understanding as we go from here, as we continue to work through these three chapters, 5 through 7. Last week we were in verse 13, the declaration that you are the salt of the earth, and we talked about that. Again, if you were not here last week, I would encourage you to, to listen to that text, because again, these, are, these passages are building upon one another. Up to this point in time, we have had... Uh, 13 verses, and in those 13 verses, there, we have identified that there are no commands in these verses. As we've talked about, I don't want to review that at this point, but you, you will notice if you read through the first 13 verses, there are no commands. There are statements of reality, uh, there are statements of fact, and, um, and it's very important that we see that. Verse 14 will start out the same way. Uh, 15 um, will continue that idea of no commands, uh, no imperatives. Verse 16 will change that. There will be an imperative in verse 16, and it will begin a change in the flow, the complete flow of the sermon that Jesus preaches on the mount north of Galilee. Because from here on out, there's going to be all sorts of commands. And he's going to build one command onto another. I would argue that from verse 16 following, that is actually 17 and following, what you're going to find is what Jesus is going to do in one way. He's not going to introduce anything new until the end of chapter 7. In a very real way. Now, he will introduce some things new, but really they're just variations on the theme. In other words, what I mean is he's gone, and once we get through today's message, we will find from here on out he's going to go from general statements down to many specific statements that are coming out of the general statements of 1 through 16. Does that make sense? So 1 through 16 is a general declaration. Multitude of general de declarations. They sound really specific when we go through the Beatitudes, but we understand that they're all really developing one major theme instead of nine themes. There's only one major theme as we saw when we worked our way through it. What's going to happen again in 17 and following is a zeroing in on it's almost like going from the big view down into the microscope and you're looking at the microscopic view and looking at each individual piece as you work your way through. So that's what we're going to do as we work our way 
forward. But today we're in verses 14 uh, through 16. And in 14, uh, we'll st- uh, let me just read the individual verses. Tom just read 1 through 16. I'm going to read 14 through 16 again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, as we saw at the beginning of verse 13, he said, he made this this. Simple yet profound declaration at the beginning of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. In the same way, in 14, he says, you are the light of the world. It's a, not, a, not a command in this text at this point to be the light of the world. It is you are the light of the world. Words mean something. and sentence structure means something. He says, you are the light of the world. It's an intriguing statement that he gives to these listeners if you remember, he's, he's high up on, most likely high up on a hillside or a small mountain north of Galilee, and the disciples are gathered at his feet, and beyond the disciples are multitudes of other followers. The Bible says, we saw that already in chapter 4, that the people all over, generally speaking, all over, are following Jesus at this point in time. Primarily, they're following him for what reason? Because he's doing all these miracles. And so they're following him for that reason. That's what chap- end of chapter 4 says. That's primary. We see that elsewhere. That's what they're doing. All through, almost all the way through his, his ministry, they're following him primarily for the miracles that he's doing. And so there's a big, vast multitude of people who are here. And speaking to that multitude in verse 14, he declares to them, you, speaking not just to his disciples, but also to the multitude, you are the light of the world. That's a problematic statement. It really is. It's a really problematic statement at some level. Because I would submit to you that the reality is, functionally speaking, the people who, who he's speaking to here are, you answer it to me, generally speaking, the people he's speaking to are the light of the world or are not the light of the world? They are not the light of the world. They're not. How do I know that? Well, jump back into chapter 4, if you would. I want you to notice something very important starting in verse 15 of chapter 4. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 16. The people dwelling where? In darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At that point in time, he begins to call his disciples, you see, at the very end. So he calls the twelve, although some will come afterwards. He, He begins that process here. It's interesting, they are living where? In a land of darkness, right? They're living in a land of darkness. Now, you could, one, one could argue, well, they could be living in a land of darkness, but they, maybe those listening, are people of the light, perhaps, right? But the problem with that 
is there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence from here going forward that that's not the case, is it? Read any of the Gospels for the most part. Now, there may be an exception or two, right? Or three or whatever. But generally speaking, you know the story of the Gospels. The story of the Gospels is that they are believing in Jesus the Messiah or they are not. The Lamb of God or they are not. Which one is it? They're not believing in the Lamb of God. Right? And it's pretty evident as you work your way, I'm talking generally right now, the general perspective throughout all four Gospels is what? They are not. As a matter of fact, it starts out great, doesn't it? Everybody's following him, right? But again, why are they, why are they following him? They're following him for all the wrong reasons. But when push comes to shove and Jesus, shortly before his death, starts preaching the most painful of the Gospels, of the message, what happens? The Scriptures say they all left him. They all left him. The 12 stayed with him at that point in time, and one of the 12 leave, right? And then once he's arrested, what happens to the rest of the 11? They're gone too, aren't they? They're gone as well. The evidence is really thin. And now we have some, some glimpses, right? We do have some glimpses, like the woman at the well. There's a, there's a little glimpse there, isn't there? Of someone who gets it at some level, at some important level. You have, you have a couple of people who are healed who get it, right? At some level, they get it. But they're presented as exceptions, not the rule, are they not? They're presented as the exceptions, not the rule. In John 1, it even says, he came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. So we know that that, that, that the storyline of the Gospels is not that there is some sort of vast revival that takes place, is there? Quite to the contrary. Dramatically to the contrary. They do what? Rather than embracing the Gospel of Jesus, they embrace the healer Jesus for a while. Correct? But it only lasts a little while. But the gospel of Jesus, the reason why Jesus came, you don't see is embraced. Pretty much at all. But yet he says here to these people, you are the light of the world. He's speaking to people who live in darkness. The, the light has come. And in verse 16, the light has come is referring to what? The light dawning is referring to what? Christ himself. Jesus himself is there. The light has dawned. And it's shining into grotesque darkness. And they've seen the light. Now you could say, well, if, doesn't, if, if they've seen the light, doesn't that mean they believed? No. People see the light and reject all the time. Do they not in the, in the Gospels? It happens all the time. They see and hear the light and they reject it continually. And that's exactly what John 1 talks about. But yet Jesus says to them in verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's an intriguing, problematic statement. Is Jesus wrong? The answer is no. Jesus is not wrong. When he says to the people, you are 
the light of the world, I want you to notice also, he did not say, you will be the light of the world. He didn't say that, did he? In this text? What's that? It's present tense. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say you will be. He says you are. So what could he possibly be referring to? I would argue contextually there's only one thing that makes sense in this statement. You are the light of the world in this passage. What it's referencing is the same thing we've been referencing all along. The only thing that brings coherence to the text is this. When he says, you are the light of the world, he's referencing the reality that they are God's what? People. Chosen people. They are God's people who he has cut a covenant with, and it is a covenant of life and peace, right? And it comes with all sorts of blessings as well as responsibilities, but in contrast to the rest of the world that does not have that covenant, they stand different. Do they not? They are God's chosen people. The rest are not. Does that make sense? In so being, they are the light of the world. That is, they are the recipient of God's love. Covenant love. And there is no question, even at a most basic level, even at a very most basic level, we talk about it as a Christian today, we, are, we have light that is supposed to shine, the Scriptures tell us, right? Let your light so shine, right? It says it here, but it also says it in Philippians. I believe it is uh, Philippians 2. We are to shine as lights. Philippians 2.15. We are to shine as lights. What, what light are we? What light do we have? I just want to ask the question. What light do we have? What was that? God's promises? The, more specifically, Promises come from God and all the rest of God's love that flows out to us, His covenant love that flows out to us. And so the result, if God's love and His light shines out to us, what inevitably happens? It reflects, right? So we have a derivative light that inevitably shines, right? Even in all the mess that Israel is at this point in time. Are they a mess? Yet, there is a derivative light shining that is about God's covenant faithfulness. Does that make sense? God's covenant faithfulness is still pouring out on the people. And more dramatically now than ever. Why? Because the light has come. So the covenant light, the covenant love has been shining undeservedly, right? And they've been rebellious pretty much the whole time, haven't they? And even in the rebellion, what has happened? The light, the derivative light has reflected from them and has shown. And if you think about Israel history, you know it's true. What are the chances that they could take over the promised land? Zero. Did they take over the promised land? Yes. Derivative light. What were the chances they could conquer the Philistines? None. Did they conquer the Philistines? Derivative light. 
Were they rebellious? Yes. Did God send prophets to them to call them to repentance? Yes. Derivative light. We can go on and on with that. It can go on forever. We don't have time. The derivative light is there. Even in the midst of all the mess that they are, and they're in rebellious mess, they're, because of God's covenant faithfulness, they are the light of the world. It's important that we understand that. You are the light of the world. He goes on in the text, and he says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So I want to stop just on that section, verse 15, for a little bit. We want to camp on that. The end of 14 and 15. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Seems to not fit in the text, right? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Seems kind of not making sense to each other. Let me help you understand. In the Middle East, um, especially in Jerusalem and, and other places, um, typically cities were not built oftentimes in valleys. They were built usually on hillsides, purely from a perspective, or on hilltops, purely on the perspective of uh, protection, defense. Defense is a lot better on top of a hill than down in a valley. Down in a valley, it's really easy to shoot down into the city. Up on a hill, you can't very well shoot. You can't see what you're shooting in, into. So being on a hill is an important thing from a defensive standpoint. But also, they used to build their, their homes out of the, the, the rock that was in the area. And in the, in the area around uh, Israel, the rock is typically very, very light-colored, very whitish. And even to this day, when you go there, a lot of the, a lot of the buildings are just almost straight white. There's some that are a really, really light color stone, but mostly it's white stones or almost off-white stones. They shine. They gleam. And when the sun shines upon them, it's really gleaming. What's Jesus' point? A city set in a hill can't be missed because it's reflecting the light. If you're anywhere around the hillside, if there's a, if there's a city up there, it can't be missed because the light is reflecting off of these these light-to-white colored stone buildings everywhere. You can't miss it. Now, some people have tried to, to work off of, of the, um, the text, a city set, set on a hill cannot be hidden, referring to Jerusalem. And it may very well refer to Jerusalem being on Mount Zion. It could be specifically that. I suspect it's more broad brush than that. They're up north side of Galilee, and anywhere you look that you see a city, you can't miss it. Even to this day, if you ever go to Galilee, for example, and you look around the Sea of Galilee, you can see all the various cities around and they are just obviously stick out like sore thumbs because they're just bright. You can't miss it. His point is, it's a comparison. You're the light of the world. Just like the cities that are put on a hill cannot be missed, light cannot be missed because they're reflecting the light is the point. He goes on into verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you, this is ludicrous, in other words. Verse 16 is trying to present a ludicrous idea in the negative. If you light a light, you don't light it and then hide it. What's the point of lighting the light? It serves no point at all. Now I know we put shades around our lights at home, right? If you've got a, a, a desk lamp, you have a shade around it. But it's not to hide the, lamp, the light, is it? 
It's just so it doesn't glare in your eyes. You turn it on because you want the light. Otherwise, you'd be in darkness. So if you light a light, it's, it's ludicrous. If you light a light, that you would uh, do what? Light a lamp and place it under a basket. That doesn't make any sense. You light a light because you want the light to shine. Or more specifically, you want the light to drive out the darkness. It makes sense, doesn't it? This is not a hard concept here. So instead of putting it under a basket, you do what? What does it say? You put it on a stand. What does that mean? You put it on a stand. What are you, why are you putting it on a stand? Because you're going to elevate it for the purpose of illumination so that the light spreads further. In other words, you're elevating it so that there's no other obstacles in its way. Correct? So that it'll fill the whole room. I mean, this is obvious stuff. But at the same time, we want to work our way through it to understand it. As a result, verse 15, it gives light to all in the house. So you don't cover it because it doesn't do any good. Instead, you elevate it so that everyone that's in the room receives benefit, right? Is able to enjoy and function within the light. Makes sense, right? So what's, what's Jesus trying to get to? He's tying this into the statement, you are the light of the world. What's he trying to drive toward, though? When he ties the two together, here's what he's talking about. When he says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, <clears throat> nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, what's he driving toward? He, what he's driving toward is really simple. In their rebellion, what have they done? In their thousands of years of rebellion, what have they done? Have they been recipients of the light? Yes. Are they currently recipients of even a greater light? Yes. Jesus is in their midst. Chapter 4, verse 16. What have they done up until Jesus showed up? All along, what did they do? They put the light under the basket of their rebellion. That's what they did. Their rejection of the truth. They're clinging to falsehood. They continually and characteristically, except for a few short moments in time, in the biblical record, Josiah, for example, for a short period of time, and a few others, except for a few short periods of time, what did they do with the light? Under a basket. You can't read it any more clearly than in the book of Malachi. From chapter 1 through chapter 4, it is so clear, resoundingly is clear, every single verse of the book. Their light is under a basket. But he, the implication of the text is nobody does that. That's how ludicrous it is, how insane it is. You don't light a light, you don't have a light and hide it, but you put it on a pedestal so that it does good to everyone in the room. What he's implying in the statement is what? You, however, Israel, continuing the theme all the way through from the beginning of the chapter, or the beginning of his message, the idea is you, however, historically have done what? 
you continued to do what? Hide it, and as a result, verse 16, you, Israel is a land of darkness. 4.16, Israel as a result is a land of darkness. They have kept the light under a basket. Whether it's because they're embarrassed and ashamed of the light, or they have better ideas, depending on the time frame, both come into play. Sometimes both of them come into play at the exact same time. My ideas are better than God. Sounds like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Exactly like Adam and Eve. What he's saying is, it doesn't make any sense. If you have light, you do what to the light? You don't hide it, but you put it on a pedestal so it gives light to all that are in the house. But what you have done, Israel, is the implication of the text, is you, especially in the context, is you have put it underneath a basket. And it is that basket has been on so long, it's like, it, it almost feels like it's supposed to be there. And it's so thoroughly on the light that when Jesus himself came, they did what? We're going to discover they killed the light. Didn't they? They so loved the darkness that in the end, they finally kill the light. And what Jesus is saying is not a good thing. What he's, what he's, this is a condemning verse. God has in, endowed you with all kinds of covenantal blessings. It goes back to chapter three, 5, verses 3 through 12, doesn't it? He's endowed you with all sorts of blessings. And you have remained in the dark. And remained in the dark. And remained in the dark. And fought for the dark. And now, finally, at the fullness of time, the light, the greatest light has come. And what are they going to do? They're going to kill the light. And all they're after with regard to the light is what? The miracles he can do. Which means they're still in the darkness. And as a result of that, because they're in darkness, what happens to everybody else that's in the house? Everybody else is in darkness as well. The horrifying verse. They're given so many blessings. So much love. So much care. So much watching over. I mean, my goodness, he opened the Red Sea for them. He rescued them from slavery. He gave them a covenant. He fed them. He guided them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He opened the Red Sea for them. I'm sorry, the, the Jordan River for them. He gave them a supernatural conquering of the two kings east of the Jordan. Then after they crossed, he gave them supernatural conquering of Jericho. And then after repentance, they did what? They had conquering of Ai. And after Ai, they had the, all five years or seven years of battles that they won to take over the land. And then they finally had peace. Light. And what did they do almost the whole time? Kept it under a basket. Kept it hidden. 
in the process came up with all their own laws, different laws, additions to the law. It's called the Talmud. We call it the Talmud today. And they followed all sorts of other laws. Which is why Jesus condemns the Pharisees so strongly in chapter 25 of Matthew. See, the simple reality is they are the light of the world because of God's covenant blessing, but it is in spite of them. Isn't it? It is in spite of them that they're the light of the world. Because the entire time they've been in rebellion to the light. Haven't they? The whole time they have been in rebellion to the light. You know what happens after this verse, after this section happens? The statement, you are the light of the world, does not show up in the Gospels ever again. You know what shows up from here on out? If It only shows up once. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 8, verse 12. It changes from you are the light of the world to I am the light of the world. Because they're not. Oh, there is light coming because Jesus is there, right? And so there, there is some light reflecting, derivative light reflecting, but it's so dim because of their rebellion. It is so dim that Jesus changes the phrase to, I am the light of the world. As a matter of fact, at one point, he talks about, Jesus talks about the people being enthralled for a short period of time with John the Baptist because he was bringing the light. But then quickly they get tired of him as well, don't they? They quickly get tired of him as well. So verse 14 and 15, 14 is the declaration, you are the light of the world. <clears throat> the end of 14 and 15 is a condemnation because they are not the light of the world. They are, and there is a derivative light in spite of them, but they themselves are not purposefully being light. They are purposefully in rebellion, which ties directly back to verses 2 through 12 again, because they could not receive the blessing because they were not following the law, were they? They were not following the law. And so they were condemned. This is just another way that Jesus is showing them how condemned they are, 14 and 15. We come to verse 16 and we have a shift. In verse 16 it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The words at the beginning of 16, in the same way, is not referencing in the same way you have been doing. That is not the, the command that Jesus is giving. He's not saying continue in the way you have been going. Being a, a very muted derivative light in spite of yourself. He says quite to the contrary, the in the same way is referencing verse 15, not the beginning of verse 14. 
The in the same way is referencing the lamp. The way a lamp is supposed to work in a house. A lamp in the house, when lit and put on a pedestal, is supposed to drive out all darkness because light and darkness cannot coexist. They cannot be together. And so he says, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others is referencing something radically different from who they are. Could I submit to you? Jesus is referencing something not only different than who they are, he's referencing something different than what they can be. That's what he's doing. He's giving them, in other words, a command that they cannot do. Can't. Why? Because they're in rebellion. They're after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They don't have a hope. And anyway, no one can, can they? Can anyone let your light shine on your own? By yourself? No, of course not. None of us can. By ourselves? It's impossible. Can any of us glorify God? Can, in the Old Testament, can anybody perfectly keep the law? God's standard is perfection? No. Cannot. In the same way as a light on a lampstand in a house drives out the light, drives out the darkness, in the same way you let your light shine, drive out all the darkness everywhere you go. Okay, that's a pretty tough standard. Isn't it? Isn't it? Pretty high standard. Lamps do it pretty well, don't they? Lamps do it very well. Driving out all the darkness. Here we go. Right here. You and I, the Jews in Jesus' day, not so well. In fact, that's probably too gracious of a statement. Not at all. It's more like it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want you to notice, he says, first of all, as we just looked at, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Who's the others? Other Jews, as well as travelers who are coming through the area, Gentiles. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not glory to you, but glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is there any evidence in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, where that happens? The answer is no. There isn't. Not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's no evidence that happens. Matter of fact, the evidence is quite to the contrary. And the reason for this is because Jesus in giving this command, is actually condemning them because they, again, can't measure up. They can't do it. Even if they wanted to do it, they couldn't do it. The goal is that your light shines in such a way that other people will see it, but in seeing the light, what else is exposed 
in the light, according to this text? Well, before that, what else is exposed? Your good works are exposed. So that people, when they see the light, if the light's coming from you as a derivative light, they are going to see what in you? Your good works. You're faithfully glorifying God. The good works that's being referenced are, are the things that glorify God. Because what do they end up doing? They don't glorify the one who's doing the good works, do they? They glorify your Father who is in heaven. So it says. Let your light shine in the same way so that people who see the light will see you in the light, and when they see you in the light, they will see your good works, and the good works have to, if, if you follow through, the good works that he's referencing are not, you help the old lady across the street, you, and you carry her groceries for her home. You realize that? I'm just using that as an illustration. That's not what he's talking about. You can do all you want. And you know what? If Ken, if I may use you as an illustration, Ken, if Ken helps the old lady across the street and carries her groceries for, let me use an a more clear illustration. I don't know if you remember this, but it, I was in your truck about seven or eight, nine years ago. We were driving somewhere. I can't remember what it was. And there was an old gentleman. It was wintertime. There was an older gentleman who was shoveling out his basement doors. And you saw it, and you hit the brakes, and you jumped out, and you grabbed the shovel from him, and you shoveled it out. Yes. I remember it. Yeah, yeah your, your, your Alzheimer's is kicking in. And he shoveled it out. After he got shoveled out, he, he went to jump back in the truck, and I was out there too, a little bit too, but it was only one shovel. I kicked some snow, and that was about it. And the old man said to Ken, and I think about it every time I drive by his house, the old man was just like, Ken, my goodness, he didn't know you, but he says, he says man, thanks, appreciate it so much. I don't, this would have worn me out. And he just kept effusing praise upon, to Ken, upon Ken. And that's nice that he did that, right? It's a good horizontal thing to do, isn't it? It's a good societal thing to do, isn't it? You help protect him from a heart attack, perhaps. There's heavy snow. That's not what he's talking about here, is he? He's saying your light is shining and the result is the people who see the light see you in the light and the very strong idea, necessary implication of the text is that in seeing you in the light they see your good works that are doing what? Are glorifying God and pointing to Jesus. By necessity, what's going to have to be there along with the good works? The good works of actions and the good works of speaking. How else do they know that God is to be glorified? Right? How else are they to be known? How else is it to be known other than the speaking? And the result is these people, seeing your good works, both actions and words, they what? They give glory to God. That man was giving glory to you. I'm not cutting on you. I'm not condemning you. I'm just using the illustration. That's the point. That's the command. 
But it's something they can't do. Why? Why can't the people in Jesus' day do that? The easy answer is because they're not repenting and believing. And the Spirit is therefore not at work in their life, right? Because the Spirit is at work in their life, they'd be repenting and believing and following Jesus. And in following Jesus, what would happen? They'd be getting a greater light, which means that they would have a greater derivative light, which means that people would see the light and they would see the person's good works and glorify God who's in heaven. But they are not. Quite to the contrary, over time, more and more people hate Jesus, do they not? Till ultimately everybody does. And those, who, those few who aren't haters of Jesus, those few who aren't, are ashamed of him. Is one better than the other? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's an interesting text. From here again, Jesus moves on to declare himself to be the light of the world. And I think that's a very telling thing, as I already mentioned. I think it's a telling thing because the people are functionally not the light of the world. But Jesus is the light of the world. But you know what's really interesting? Eventually everybody hates him. And everybody cries crucify him. Do they not? And Jesus is hung on a tree. He is crucified. He's buried. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And when he does, sin is atoned for, right? Sin, Satan, and death are conquered. And Jesus tells his disciples, what? In a little bit, I'm going to leave you. And in a little bit, I'm going to what? I'm going to send a helper, the God's Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes upon you, what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? You know what he says? That's exactly what he says. You know what he just told them in Acts 1 when he said that? He said, you will be the light of the world. Do you realize that? That's what he said. <laughs> he said, you'll be the light of the world. And then in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them and what happened? They received power. And suddenly... Peter, who cowered in front of a slave girl, does what? He gets up and boldly preaches about the light. Does he not? And he calls them to repent and believe. And what's different this time, unlike Matthew chapter 5, what's different this time, Acts chapter 2, what happens? 3,000 people what? Repent and believe. And they come into the light. And they do what? 
they see Peter's good deeds, don't they? And they what? They glorify God who's in heaven. Isn't it interesting how everything changes? Everything changes. It changes. Why? It changes because of Christ's death. Sin atoned for. You see, this statement about you are the light of the world is looking backwards to the Old Testament commandments found in Deuteronomy. But for some, it is a future thing, isn't it? Acts chapter 2. But it's because of Christ being the sole light of the world. He's the light of the world. And suddenly because of that, in Acts chapter 2, the derivative light that comes upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2 is a blinding light, isn't it? It's a blinding light. No mistaking Acts chapter 9, right? What happened in Acts chapter 9? Saul, and what did he see? <laughs> yeah, it was so bright it blinded him, right? But he saw the light, didn't he? The light shined, the light of the world. And from then on, Saul was what? He was a moving, walking, talking, breathing reflector of what? The light. And people did what? Some people saw the light. And they saw his good works. And they glorified God who was in heaven. Did they not? Didn't that, isn't that what happened? That's exactly what happened. In this text, I would argue in 14 through 16, and you're going to see it's going to continue, this is a, he's, he's, he's addressing them not in a positive light, but in a negative light. He's addressing them in a condemning light. They desperately need this greater light, Jesus Christ. They desperately need to be in the light. We must not end this conversation this morning before we see a couple other passages. Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, you were in darkness, but now you're in the light. So he said, and most importantly, I would argue 1 John chapter 1. Right, Ken? 1 John chapter 1. In fact, let's turn there. We can look at that one. First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus is, his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The question for John in 1 John chapter 1 is, simply put, are you in the light or are you not? If you're in the light, you've received forgiveness. If you're in the light, you've been saved. If you're in the light, you have, you have had your sins cleansed. If you are in the light, you have fellowship with God. So, of course, you'd have fellowship with one another. That's what 1 John says. So if we combine 1 John with Matthew, what we have is this idea, we have fellowship with one another plus What? Those who are lost and in darkness see the light in us. They observe our good deeds, word, and action, and they end up, some of them end up doing what again? Glorifying God who's in heaven. For those who are believers, what should happen, what should be happening according to 1 John, is this. If we are in the light, we will have fellowship with others who are also in the light. Does that mean that we can all talk about our sports teams together because we're both in the light? That's not what it means! I'm just using that as an example. What that means is if I'm in the light and you're in the light, you know what we're going to enjoy more than anything else? The light! Which means if we are in the light, if I'm in the light and you're in the light, should it not be expected that the theme of our lives together will be what? In the light stuff. Should it not be expected that would be the case? Shouldn't it? To, to have, a, to, to say that I'm in the light and you say you're in the light and yet our conversations are not about the light are like never about the light or almost never about the light and certainly the light isn't the predominant discussion an emphasis of our lives and our conversations, our fellowship, to use the term fellowship, means what? Think about Matthew chapter 5 again. What does that mean? Again, let me state it again. I'm looking for an answer. First John, if I say I'm in fellowship, that means I'm in the light. Okay? If I say I'm in the light, and others say they're in the light, but our conversation is about anything and everything but the light, or at least the predominance emphasis is not about light stuff, what does that mean tying it back to Matthew chapter 5? Yes, it means your light's under a basket. And it's ludicrous. Is that where we started? It's ludicrous. It's insane. It doesn't make any sense. If, if I'm in the light, am I not going to love the light? Aren't I? Let me use this illustration. This has nothing to do with the light per se, but it'll make sense. Last week, Friday, I went for a trail run. My first trail Did I tell you this last week? First trail run since I broke my neck last year, April. <clears throat> I was trying to be really careful. My friend, who's an ultra runner, wanted to go on this trail by me that was cut four years earlier and almost nobody ran on it. 
it rained. So the undergrowth was all, it was all overgrown anyway, but then the undergrowth was folded over, so it was covering the trail, so you really couldn't see what was on the trail. And so I was really focused on the trail, trying to be really careful, because I didn't want to fall. Does that make sense? Three-tenths of a mile later, guess what happened? I fell. Literally, three-tenths of a mile into the run, I stepped on a branch. I saw it there. I stepped on it, but it was a forked branch. I didn't see the fork. And the fork came up and caught my right foot as I was going forward. And of course, it doesn't go any further at that point. And so down I went right on my face. Now, I didn't get hurt. Got up. I laughed about it. You know, I said, well, at least my neck took that. A tenth of a mile later. Now I'm really focused on the trail because you can't really see because it's all overgrown. And I'm really focused. It's, it's really humid. And so my glasses had slid down on my nose. And my running glasses have a pretty big bar across the top, the frame, pretty big frame on top. And so I'm running, I'm booking along, focused on the trail. And I didn't see a branch that's about this big around at eye level. The frame was completely blocking it till it was right about here. And suddenly it broke into my consciousness that I'm about to run pell-mell right into, right into that branch. <clears throat> Almost no time to recoil. And so I'm booking it right into my nose. Now, I believe it caught the frame versus catching my nose. It hurts really bad, even to this day right over here. I suspect I may have broke something there. Don't know. I can breathe fine. Everything seems to work fine, but I can wipe my nose okay. But if I touch over here, whoa, right to the brain. <clears throat> but anyway, <clears throat> what? Exactly. It has nothing to do with the light, but the point is, <clears throat> after that, I smacked my nose really bad. It hurt. I saw stars. Didn't have any blood, which encouraged me, but man, it hurt. It dazed me. After that, the rest of the five miles we ran, I was Mr. Constantly looking up and down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, watching for anything, because I don't want to hit anything. You know, from moving so much. It would have been ludicrous, wouldn't it have? It would have been absolutely ludicrous for me to have smacked my nose, tripped and fell, and then get up and act like nothing happened, right? <laughs> I had sunglasses on. It would have been ludicrous to act like nothing happened and continue to run, wouldn't it have? Wouldn't it have? You'd, you'd have adjusted, wouldn't you have? Now, Charles, you'd have just stopped running. But you would have been doing that in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> My point is, everything changed, right? For me, those rest of those five miles, everything changed. And I was hyper-focused and now we get into the light. I was using the light for my fullest advantage, wasn't I? Right? The crazy thing, when it comes to spiritually, it's like we deceive ourselves, don't we? We think everything's okay. We trip and fall because we're in the darkness. And we get up, we know oh, everything's fine. Da -da 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 -da. Whack! Run right into a branch. Eyes are watering, head hurts, nose feels horrible, and we finally kind of recover from that, and we act like everything's fine. 
And we just go on. Like everything's okay. And we, nothing ever changes. And what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Bigger branches. More falls. Worse falls. Why? Spiritually speaking, it's because we're living our lives with a basket over the light. Does that make sense? Now, I would argue that what, what Jesus is arguing against the Jews here, if I may be as clear as possible, what Jesus is arguing to the Jews here is not merely, come on guys, take the basket off. Because it's not something they can do, can they? They can't take the basket off. See, I could change how I was running. That was easy. Juice isn't worth the squeeze. I better adjust. Yeah, exactly. But spiritually, it takes the spirit, doesn't it? The spirit must make the change. These people in Jesus' day didn't have a hope of changing, did they? The basket was on the lamp, and the lamp was sitting on the floor. Lamp was in the room. Lamp was lit. The covenant was there. They were ignoring it, minimizing it, ashamed of it, adding to it, doing their own thing. That's all they could do. Why? Because the Spirit wasn't at work. And so they were condemned. But then Christ became the light of the world. And he declared himself the light of the world. And when he declared himself the light of the world, what happened? They hated him. He came in his own and they did not receive him. And they hated him and they killed him. And three days later he rose again. And then 40 days after that or so, the day of Pentecost came, didn't it? And the light shined. And people, because the Spirit was working in their life, they cried out, what must we do to be saved? And they repented and believed. And then when it happened, that they repented and believed, what changed? The basket disappeared, didn't it? The basket disappeared. It did. The basket was thrown away. And the light was set on the pedestal, wasn't it? And you can't miss the point of the pedestal, right? It goes back to what I said. If, I'm in the, if, I'm, if I say I'm in fellowship and you say you're in fellowship and our light's not on the pedestal, if it's on the pedestal, it's a place of prominence, right? Isn't it? It's a place of prominence. If it's not on the it's not a pedestal. It's not a place of pre- prominence. It says something about us. Ultimately, it says we're just like the Jews in Jesus' day. If it's not prominent, if we're not loving the light, if the basket's still over it, it says we're also still condemned. I always remember growing up as a kid singing that song. I don't remember exactly how it goes. 
But the general idea, at least I could be misunderstanding the song when I was a kid, but the general understanding I had of the song is that I got to just take the basket off. But that's not the point, is it? The point is I can't take off the basket. I can't. Only the Holy Spirit can take the basket off. And we can't miss the point that when the basket's off, the light's on the pedestal to combine the metaphors here, we will be like a city on a hill. Won't we? And that statement in verse 15, or verse 14 about the city on a hill can't be missed. Can't be. People can't miss the point that you love Jesus. They can't miss the point that I love Jesus. They can't miss the point that Jesus is your reason for getting up in the morning. They can't miss the point that Jesus is the reason why I go to work every morning. They can't miss the point that the reason why I recreate is Jesus. They can't miss the point that the reason why I'm in a family relationship is Jesus. They can't miss the point that the belongings I have are for Jesus. They can't miss the point that the very life I have is for Jesus. The point of the text is not you've got to try better and do better and work real hard to get in the lamp up on the pedestal in the basket off it. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that we need someone else to do it for us. And Jesus accomplished the task on the cross. And when we're given the Spirit, the task is completed. And the light shines. And we are the light of the world. Are you in fellowship? Are you in the light? Are we really? It's easy to say it, isn't it? It's easy to say, yes, Steve, I'm in the light. As he is in the light. 1 John 1, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Absolutely. It's easy. It really is. It's easy to say, I love the light. If I ask the question, do you love the light? It's easy to say, yes, I love the light. Doesn't cost you anything to say that here, does it? Do people see your good deeds and glorify God who's in heaven? Could I submit to you, people glorify God who is in heaven even if they reject that? It doesn't mean they have to get saved. Remember what we said way back in when we studied the Gospel of Mark, when people come in contact with Jesus, they either love him or hate him? Both glorify God. Romans 9 makes that very clear. I say that because I, I, again, this is old news. I'll be honest with you, it's old news. I know when I first came to Vincent Baptist Church, it amazed me how many times neighbors would, in the large area around the church, how many times I'd talk to people, I'd meet people, I'd talk to them, I'd find out where they live and say, oh, I know so-and-so lives by your house. He's a member of our church. It amazed me how many times I had people say, he goes to church? Yeah, he's a member of our church. 
really? I never would have guessed. Is that troublesome? Not that they're talking about Vincent Baptist Church or now Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, but if you're not talking about if you're not talking about your church, you certainly aren't talking about Christ, right? They didn't know they were religious. And it wasn't just one person. I heard from numerous people. About numerous people. They didn't know they were religious. You know, back then I looked at it and I said, you know, that's really sad. That needs to change. Now I look at it differently. I look at it, that's really sad because that person really wasn't religious. You realize that? Those people really weren't religious. I don't mean that in, in the bad term. I'm talking about religious as in biblical religion. They weren't Christ followers. How could they be? How could they be Christ followers? It's easy to say I'm in the light. It's easy to say if, if you're questioned, yeah, I love Jesus. You know, if your pastor comes and says, hey, you love Jesus? It's really easy to say, yeah, I love Jesus. Right? It's easy. But Jesus is talking about people in the darkness see the light in you and react to it. And God's glorified. He's either glorified because they respond in repentance or he's glorified because of the persecution of the saints. Right? Either way, he's glorified. Too often I find that we are people who God's not glorified in people getting saved and God's not glorified in people persecuting the saints. We're kind of just in this no man's land. Why? It has to be because the lamp is under the bushel still. It has to be. Again, Philippians 2.15 calls us as believers, as people who are believers, to shine as lights. Ephesians 5.18 says, You were in darkness, but not anymore. The evidence should be. Should be. It should be that we're in light if we're in light. Should be. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you, it has to be if he's the light of the world. And we have the light coming to us because we are also covenantly redeemed people. Then the light is coming to us, is it not? If the light is coming to us, then should there not be derivative light? It would be the only thing that makes sense. If the light's not there, there's only one reason why the light wouldn't be there from a derivative, derivative way. And the reason why it wouldn't be there is because it doesn't come. Because if it's coming to us, it's going to flow from us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. It doesn't say you must love because he first loved us. He says you, you love because he first loved us. That's what it says. It happens. And God is glorified. So if I could say anything in closing, I'm going to wrap it up right now. Our task is to, as Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 4, once again, do what? Repent and believe. 
Our task is not to do better. Our task is not to try to make the light shine brighter. The Spirit does that. You do realize that, right? The Spirit does that in his children. Our task, our call, is always to repent and believe. And to repent and cry out to God to change your heart. To inflame your heart with the love that is pouring to you. And you know what the Spirit will do in you? He will do what He's commanded you to do. He will cause you to what? To seek Him while He may be found. Do you realize that? He'll change your heart so you do seek Him. And so we seek Him. You will love the light because He causes you to love the light because He changes your heart. That's what happens. That's what he does. And we will find ourselves again and again and again repenting and believing, repenting and following, repenting and pursuing, repenting and turning to the light and enjoying the light. Because my only hope is that I have a light flowing to me that is a perfect light. Because that perfect light perfectly fulfilled the law in a way I cannot, even in the best of my activities. So let us pray and ask God to change our hearts so we love the light and enjoy the light and be satisfied with the light. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We so often want to pretend. We so often want to look like we are in the light. We so often want to present ourselves in a certain light. But you are the light of the world. And our only hope is you because we need a righteousness that's not our own. And so we ask you that you will move in our lives. Give us a desire as a supernatural desire for you, to know you. Draw us close, cleanse us, transform us, empower us to reflect the light so that those around us, friends, neighbors, co-workers, acquaintances, strangers, will see the light. And seeing the light, we'll see our good deeds. And we'll hear about your good deed. And we'll glorify God in heaven. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?